Good listeners, welcome back to the pod. I have got my uh, one of my regular guests on the show today. Um, if there's one person in Australia who understands numbers and uh, is right into the guts of the property market and the mortgages is Martin North, and he's been on our podcast a few times. Martin, welcome back to the show, buddy. Hello, how are you going? Good, mate. Good to see you again. I know. I, I tell you what, since we spoke last time, a lot of water's gone under the bridge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's interesting. When we spoke last time, it was during the COVID period and there was a lot of stuff going on since that, uh, at, that, at the time with regards to JobKeeper, JobSeeker, uh, M2 Money Supply and the property market. Um, and everything seems like has has taken a U-turn, if that's the better word, uh, and started going towards north, whether it's the property market or whether it's the stock market and all that stuff. So there's a few things that I want to discuss today. But from a very macro perspective, Martin, the things that I had in mind that we wanted to get started on was, one is the uh, Biden's tax proposal, uh, which were announced a week or so ago. Um, I just wanted to see what your take was on that. And uh, then we'll, we'll we'll start with some of the macro stuff and then we'll go down into Australian property market and the mortgage, num- mortgage yeah. numbers, which is your sure. bread and butter anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting. You know, Biden has basically got this huge stimulus package, more coming, of course, as well. And, uh, you know, in a way, I think if you look in detail, um, there's a lot of different money being thrown in all sorts of different directions. And some of it is probably mm-hmm. covering you know, 10 to 15 years of poor investment in the US particularly, but also some of it's targeted to try and actually pull the economy back. I'm fascinated by the fact that even at the time that they're rolling out the vaccines in the US, um, and therefore, you know, mm-hmm. you'd expect cases to, to come down again, the Federal Reserve is still talking about there's a long way to go and, uh, you know, more stimulus is required. They're still doing the bond purchasing. And now we've got the Biden um, uh, stimulus too. So there's a lot of money flowing into the economy. And there's a couple of questions to my mind. The first is how much of it's going to go into the real economy as opposed to just chasing mm-hmm. asset prices higher. And you know, it may be too early to say. Mm-hmm. But secondly, with all of that um, supply of money, you know, the, the money supply generally looks to be going up. But in fact, if you look at the long-term, I've done some long-term trend analysis, in the US. And in fact, the uh, inflation rate has had very little to do with money supply for the last 80 years. So it's fascinating Mm -hmm. that you can throw all this money at the system, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get what you think you're going to get, which is higher inflation and more momentum, despite the fact that most of the commentators over there are saying, thanks to the Biden stimulus and thanks to the Fed's quantitative easing, inflation is going to be roaring away soon. I'm not so convinced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Um, I think it was recently that uh, there was an article by Bank of America talk, talking about possible possibility of uh, hyper transitionary hyperinflation. Now, I'm not <laughs> sure whether you're aware of that or not. Yeah, 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 First yeah. of all, I don't want to... Uh, so disclaimer, I don't understand transitionary word over there. What is transitionary hyperinflation? Right. So, so, so look. How you, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's a mathematical trick, right? So if you dive down 10%, right, and then bounce back to where you were, to so up 10%, right, that's more than the 10% in, 
lift, in fact. So you've actually gone up more than where, because effectively you're going off a lower base, right? So mm -hmm. the fact that we had a considerable fall in a lot of the major metrics, mm -hmm. including prices and inflation, right, mm -hmm. means that we start from a low base. So any movement up is exaggerated. Mm -hmm. So that's what they mean about, you know, transitionary, because it's, it's more to do with um, where you start from. The second point is we know that the cost of materials are actually in some sectors rising because the supply chains aren't working very well. There's a lot of, for example, lumber is hard to get hold of, which means it's putting mm -hmm. prices in, up in the construction sector or, or chips. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard for some chip um, manufacturers to ship out enough new chips to be able to meet the demand that they have mm -hmm. for um, all of the uh, supply that's coming there. So, so those things could put short-term momentum. And, and you could actually see in the short term the measure of inflation, depending, we could talk about how we measure it in a second, but let's assume that we, we go with the standard measure. It will, it will rise and it will probably go above their 2 to 3% Fed target but it will be temporary because of the fact mm. that it's a mathematical trick from a low starting base. And it's a set of supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. The question that I want to look at is wages growth, because it seems to me that of all the definitions of inflation, you could talk about money supply. Well, I've said money supply doesn't actually drive inflation particularly strongly. So that relationship, I think, is bust. I don't think that uh, input price pressure alone is sufficient to drive the level of inflation that uh, people are expecting. And so really, it's, it's a question of wages growth. And that goes back to, well, so will all that stimulus money flow into higher wages growth? Well, in mm -hmm. the US, there's been very little momentum in wages growth. And if you look at corporate profits versus wages for a generation, they've gone in two different directions, right? Corporate profits have been very strong. Wages growth has not been very strong. So I guess my observation here is that whilst there might be short-term transitory hyperinflation because it's very high that doesn't mean it's structural inflation it doesn't the point i was making was that that there is a reason why there is an expectation of short-term hyperinflation right and i've explained mm -hmm. that it, it's sort of a mathematical thing and it's a supply thing but that isn't the same as structural inflation it's not the same as we had in the 1980s where in fact you know at the peak of that cycle when, of course, Nixon came off the gold standard. Um, inflation was very, very strong, but wages growth was very, very strong. So I think the real critical question for me is, are we going to see a pickup in wages growth? And I would argue that that's quite unlikely at the moment, partly because of structural reasons, partly because of automation, and partly mm. because the way that the economy has shifted with a lot of part-time work, with a lot of fragmented work, means that it's much harder now for people to actually demand higher wages. So I'm not convinced that there's a really strong pros prospect of very strong inflation ahead. And of course, the Fed is basically saying, well, you know, they expect it a little bit, but nothing particular, you know, transitory. And um, that's why I think there's a really interesting disconnect between what a lot of the, um, you know, investment bankers are saying because they're all talking up their books saying hyperinflation is coming you know we'll, we'll be whereas actually maybe it won't maybe we're actually more in a deflationary cycle and with interest rates now lower than they've ever been you know that's one signal for potential deflation but the other thing is that all the stimulus isn't necessarily inflationary it could be deflationary mm -hmm. and if in fact the stimulus is more deflationary than inflationary and if, in fact, you end up simply inflating the price of 
stock market assets or property, that's not actually hitting the real economy, right? Mm -hmm. So you could still have deflation in the real economy. So I think there's a long way to go before we can actually hands on heart say that we're definitely into an inflationary future. So that's interesting. That's a good point that you just made over there. And I was thinking about it as you were talking is the, I mean, if you think about the CPI basket, what it's, it's made of, it doesn't really take into account the asset inflation and the, uh, well, commodities is a type of asset. So commodities or real estate or stock market, right? Yeah, well, land prices aren't in inflation. Exactly. So uh, it, it takes into account very few handful items, right? So yeah. Uh, I, I, I totally get your point that we may not see the wage growth compared to the uh, inflation that we'll actually see in the market because the wage growth is based on a different matrix of metric of CPI, which is based on the CPI, whereas yep. the real market or the real economy uh, is talking something else, a completely different number set. Yeah. So the question is, how do you measure inflation in the first place, right? So they have this trimmed mean inflation number which essentially is knocking off the highs and the lows and gives you a sort of an average right and that's hardly moved moved at all but even there there's a bunch of assumptions in there about what's in what's what's not right and mm. the other complexity here is if you think of the cost of a television today relative to 10 years ago it's a lot cheaper right and you've also got a huge amount more additional functionality so in the classic measurement of what that relative price would be it would be much lower because of those two reasons. So we've got a bunch of mathematical things going on here, which suggests to me that perhaps where we're measuring it isn't necessarily giving us the full story in any case, right? Mm -hmm. So for all sorts of reasons, maybe the compass is broken. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. We had Janet Yellen um, recently um, talking about the interest rates, uh, hiking of the interest rates. We had mm -hmm. Jerome Powell a couple of weeks ago announcing that we are not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, and which obviously did impact the market a little bit. How, how do you take that statement? And do you see that rates rising? What, what are your thoughts? So it's really interesting. I mean, Powell's position is very clear, right? We're not even thinking about thinking about lifting rates up. And you know, he's been relatively consistent, although he did actually concede the other day that the markets were a bit frothy, right? Mm. I think he was talking about the crypto market in particular, but it's, it's, it's a more general statement as well, which is probably true. But Yellen basically said, look, all that stimulus, all the stuff that we're doing, so it's not the Fed's, but it's actually the, you know, it's the Biden stimulus, could actually have some impact and could require us to lift interest rates. Now, she did then went on, she sort of backed off a little bit in her subsequent statement and said, well, you know, it's not really my bailiwick and, you know, it's the feds and they're independent, et cetera, et cetera. And she did say that it wouldn't be a huge uh, mm -hmm. leg up. But it's just interesting that, that, that she at least recognises there is a risk of all this, um, uh, you know, stimulatory package coming out from the, uh, you know, from the government leading mm. to some higher inflation. And if it, high inflation is there, then rates will go up. But it's interesting, the, bonds, the bond markets didn't really move that much. You know, the bond markets went up some time back when they were concerned that the future rates of, um, uh, of interest rates will be higher than perhaps they'd expected. They're not really responding to that now. They're sort of just sitting there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that the bond sector, the bond market, is as convinced as Yelland is that rates are going to go higher. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, every time in the past, if you look at, I mean, the interest rates going way back used to be 18, 19%, right? And we all the way down to zero. Some countries are already in negative, right? Mm -hmm. US did try a couple of years ago, whether it was 14, 15 or 16, whichever year, I don't remember on top of my head, raising the rates. Um, 
And that didn't work out very well. And obviously, we had the inverted yield curve, all the stuff that happened during the COVID period, rates had to be all of a sudden dropped. So I don't know where this... Uh, I, I was just trying to understand what her thought process was when, when she was making this statement. Because when you're sitting in a, in a White House or a person, um, a profile of uh, likes of Janet Yellen making these kind of statements, first of all, you shouldn't because it's not your territory, but you still go and make it. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So I was still trying to, um, I was trying to figure out whether we are missing a point over here or it's just she's m- making stories. No, well, I think, I mean, she, I think her point was actually a genuinely made one and it was probably, um, you know, crazy bit of an overreaction in, in the market. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's no doubt that if you put a lot of stimulatory uh, fiscal money into the economy, it's going to have some impact, right? I'm not sure anybody knows quite what that impact's going to be. And, you know, mm-hmm. if, in fact, the inflationary impacts are higher, even if, you know, they're, they're not necessarily as high as some would want, um, you know, there's a question about what you do about that. So, the, you know, the real question is when will interest rates rise? Or actually, the real question might not be when, it'll be if, right? Because if you look at the long-term 80-year trend, right, after every um, recession, rates were dropped, and then they started to go up slightly and then there was another recession and they dropped. And you can see that step down, step down, step down, step down to the mm. point now where we're close to zero. Right mm. Now, I've got this view that that 80 year cycle, which peaked in the 1980s, right, mm. is now down at zero. Maybe we're at the end of that long cycle. Mm-hmm. Maybe it won't be possible to put interest mm. rates up. Maybe mm. we're locked in to... Um, a future where rates will always be at zero or close to zero, right? Now, Mm. if that's the case, then you're at a very important inflection point, economically speaking, right? Because it may well be that what's happened over the last 80 years and the assumptions that have been made won't necessarily hang together beyond that, right? Which takes Mm. you then into the futures of central bank digital currencies. So the idea perhaps of moving to a digital currency, giving everybody um, an account effectively at the Federal Reserve in the US or the other central banks, and then basically putting money directly from the Fed, not via the banks, but directly into your account. I mean, that's one future. Now, that will be a completely different model of banking that we've got. It would also put a big question under the future of retail banks and what their role is, right? So that's one future. Another future, of course, is going back to a different standard. So maybe the US dollar won't be the standard. Maybe it will be gold. Maybe it will be a basket of currencies. Maybe it will be a digital currency backed by, um, you know, a basket of currencies or um, or gold. I don't know. Mm. Um, or, or maybe it will be just pure crypto. I don't know. But the point is that maybe we're at an inflection point where the way that the banking system is working has come to the end of its useful life. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe whilst we can go on, you know, printing money and creating more stimulus, it won't necessarily have impact on the real economy. And that's my problem. A lot of what's going on at the moment is providing some financial stability to the financial markets. In fact, they're, you know, as high as they've ever been. But it's not hitting the real economy. It's not actually benefiting real people and real businesses in the in the real economy. And the question is ahead. Is anybody going to make the hard calls required to turn the corner, as it were, and mm-hmm. rather than focusing on financial, focusing on financial stability, focus on real economic outcomes? I'm not even sure that the Biden administration is going to do that. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, that's that's another interesting thing that you just mentioned. Maybe we are at the end of the long term debt cycle, which is uh, something Ray Dalio has been talking about over the last mm-hmm. few years. That it's probably a end of the long term debt cycle, which means we move towards some new form of currency. No one knows what that currency is going to be: SDR, CBDC. Uh, or something that doesn't even exist yet, or maybe cryptocurrencies is an experiment that is being done, obviously. Well, I mean, it raises a really interesting question for me, is do you need banks anymore, right? Mm. Because if you you go back in history, the bank was the intermediary, right? Because the bank basically took deposits from one end and then on a fractional reserve system was able to lend that money out. It started with gold and then it went to banknotes, right? That's the mechanism. Now, if Mm. you have a digitalized and disintermediated world, do you need banks anymore, right? Could mm-hmm. you add a, Could you actually get away with just a few central banks calling all the shots and then mm-hmm. basically seeding money down through your central bank account? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one potential future. It's, it, it's a really interesting one, right? Because basically, if you think about it, there's a lot of um, friction in the banking system or rather there's a lot of profit in the banking system created by the disintermediation of the banks even now even even in the current environment so if that were to change we could see a very different um uh, shape to financial services in the future and you know maybe you have your own you know your own personal bank as it were that's connected directly to the central bank and that's all you need now there's a bunch of questions about that which is well okay if you actually have it connected in some way to, to, to government directly or indirectly, they can potentially control it. They can actually turn it on, turn it off. They can you know, potentially say, well, you can spend money on this, but not on that. So there's a whole bunch of civil liberties control. And, and if you look at China, you know, some of the things they're doing in China with the experimentation there with their digital currencies and, and the personal scores and those sorts of things, it's all part of the, do we really want this centralized controlled future? And that, that is... <laughs> A lot of people are talking about that. And, of course, the um, World Economic Forum has been talking about the Great Reset, right? Now, Mm -hmm. the Great Reset is a fluffy concept which covers all sorts of different things. But it's interesting that quite a lot of it comes back to this idea of, well, you're just going to go on paying rent for things. You won't actually own anything in the future. You just pay rent for things, right? And in a way, the idea of having a really long-term mortgage and just going paying it, paying it, paying it, paying it, but never actually owning it, right, is, Mm -hmm. is where we're headed to already. So... That there's a bunch of really interesting and quite concerning questions about the future of money, mm-hmm. about who's controlling what, about about how much freedom we'll have. And we I think we talked on a, free, a previous show about the cash ban and the control of cash and the need to control cash, because if you can't control cash, then you can't actually take rates lower and you can't actually control the economy, says the central banks. Right. So so there's a bunch of really, really critical philosophical questions about the way that the um, economy and banks and money could work now the worry i have it's all being built from the wrong end it's all being built from central bank land it's all being built from central bank group think right you know the bank for international settlements and the world economic forum it's all then cascading down and all the central banks are sort of humming the same tune as it were now i think we should turn the whole thing on its head and say hang on a moment let's just stop and think how should an economy work right economy should be what people and businesses are doing down on the ground right it's you know people building businesses, you know, people living their lives, right? And it seems to me that the financial superstructure should actually be supporting that rather than currently, which it seems to me is they're worried about financial stability and big firms and you know, international cash flows and all that. Almost nothing about 
individual households, individual business. So I'm looking for a, a revolution that turns on its head. And actually, crypto and decentralization is a way that could happen. So, you know, it's it's quite an interesting thought as to how this could play out, not necessarily tomorrow, but in the future. Yeah, so that's interesting. It's uh, I was about to say that. So on one hand is parts of crypto, because there's only, uh, I think, uh, one or two maybe reliable ones, uh, other than the pump and dumps, uh, which talk about the decentralized decentralization, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other end is basically CBDC, CBDCs, which is controlled by central banks. And yep. it's uh, in hand of one, it's a one-man show, essentially, kind of thing. One one right. organization running it, which becomes yep. very scary at the same time. Well, well, the point is, the reason that central banks are worried about digital currencies and are experimenting with central bank digital currencies is they want to exert the same controls that they do in the real economy and in the real finance flows at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Crypto is a complete antidote to that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do see a, a really strong contention between cryptos, and you're right, there are some good ones and some really bad ones, and also central bank digital currencies and central bank control, right? Now, can they coexist? Well, maybe, but philosophically, they are pulling in two different directions, right? Mm-hmm. The central bank digital currencies is about controlling the money supply, controlling fraud and all those things and all those laudable outcomes that you know, central banks claim are the reason for them to be in existence. I'm not sure, by the way, we need central banks, but that's a whole nother, nother ball game, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Crypto land is saying, no, 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 no. You can actually liberalize and decentralize. And, you know, the fact that you've got all these parallel ledgers means that effectively you can deal with um, fraud and all those things in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I see those pulling in two different directions. There'll be a massive contention. I'm not sure that they can both exist in, in, in the future, right? So it may well be we end up with a big battle between crypto, decentralized, you know, personal owned, central bank digital currency, top down. You, you're given a bank account at the central bank and you're giving money into that bank account so they control it directly. I don't see how those two things can coexist. Yeah, so that's a, that's a very interesting thought experiment. And uh, as some of these central banks, I think China is the first one trialing it at the moment that I know of. Um, but as these central banks come out with their digital currencies, it will be interesting to see what happens to this decentralized, what, what will happen to this decentralized world. That's that's a very interesting thought experiment to be had. Uh, but we will not go there because crypto is another chapter <laughs> of its own. Uh, well, the point is nobody knows what the value of a crypto is, right? It's, it could be, you know, to the, to the moon, it could be zero. It's somewhere, it's highly speculative. And that's the problem at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But moving on to the uh, uh, property market and some of the mortgage numbers now, Last year when we spoke, property market was a little bit of doom and gloom with the stuff that was going on with COVID, lockdowns and all that stuff. Policies were basically eased and all that stuff. So, And the market has come back roaring. Uh, If you look at property prices, which is the reported prices that are coming out from some of the agencies who, quote, uh, have leading indicators of forward prices then they have gone up but not universally right so if you strip out apartments versus houses it's mostly standalone houses Mm -hmm. and within that it's mostly the top end Mm -hmm. so it's people who don't need mortgages it's people who basically have come back to australia maybe expats um, Mm -hmm. with a lot of money and are wanting to buy a standalone property it's a lot of property developers who are buying a home and 
a home on a piece of land, but not to keep the home, but to knock it down and build four to six um, villas on it, right? So there's a there's a, a development thing. So so mm-hmm. that's the story. That's the real story. And those prices have gone ma- massively high, right? Mm-hmm. In the apartment sector, it's a different story. In fact, apartment prices are still falling in, in many areas close to the centres of town because there are no students, there's no international migration. And by the way, the, the government's now saying, well, forget the international borders. We're going to be Fortress Australia for another few months at least, probably into 2022, right? So that's not going to change. Um, so we're seeing their rentals dropping dramatically. We're seeing a lot of property investors struggling to mm. make ends meet. A lot of them are in negative cash flow. So we're seeing some property investors now beginning to think, well, maybe I should sell. Right? Now, the government, as part of the COVID response, threw a huge amount of stimulus into first-time buyers and gave them a lot of money to go and buy property. And guess what? They spent a lot of money and bought property. So a lot of the market was first-time buyers. It was up to about 35% of all transactions at one stage were first-time buyers, which is Mm -hmm. massively high, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so there was local momentum there, particularly for new homeland packages. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, if you took Western Australia, for example, you could get state and federal money, which was equivalent to about $55,000. Guess how much the home and land package went up on average the next day? $55,000. So it basically flowed directly through to the construction sector. It's nothing to do with helping people to get into the market and be more affordable. It was just creating momentum. So, And that's the point. A lot of what's been going on is to create momentum in the construction sector. Mm-hmm. Over the weekend, they've now announced that they're going to roll out another extension of their um, government guarantee scheme, where you only need a 5% deposit for first-time buyers. Mm-hmm. And they've actually announced an additional, additional scheme for 2% deposit for single parents to help them buy. So basically, the, the, the 18% is guaranteed by the government. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is more stimulus to try and actually get more people to go buy property to support the construction sector. So let's be clear, this is about supporting the construction sector rather than making housing more affordable, right? Now, the final point to make, this has also been a massive shift between close into town and into the regions. There was a massive move, people moving out into the regions and buying you know, those standalone properties, as I mentioned mm-hmm. before. There's also migration from say Victoria and Sydney and Melbourne um, up into Queensland where prices are cheaper mm-hmm. and where you can actually have a, perhaps a different lifestyle. Western Australia is also working up too because effectively they locked down early. They've had very little virus and now the economy is coming back, supported, of course, by the massive exports of iron ore to China, exports which have an iron ore price of more than 200 US dollars at the moment, a massive high. So that, that's another reason. So all those things are happening. So, so you need to understand this is a real patchwork again. But yeah, definitely property is stronger. And now the question is, well, are they going to allow that to continue or will they have to follow New Zealand's uh, route? New Zealand had property prices rising on average 20% over 12 months and then they intervened and said, Reserve Bank of New Zealand, you now have to take accountability for house prices in your monetary policy. And Mm -hmm. we're going to tilt the playing field away from investors Mm -hmm. towards owner-occupiers and first-time buyers. So that was brought in a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And we've started to see the New Zealand market begin to settle. Now, In Australia, the question is, will they allow prices to continue to roar away or will they actually do macro prudential intervention here? Now, interestingly, APRA, who basically is responsible for financial stability, has already said we're not interested in 
controlling house prices is not our bailiwick. The Reserve Bank previously said, not a, we don't have any responsibility for house prices, not our problem. Um, and I begin to think, well, hang on a moment. If it's not the regulator and it's not the Reserve Bank, who's responsible for house prices, right? Because the government and Canberra, the federal government, the other week came out and said, well, it's actually down to the states. It's their problem. It's not our problem. So everyone's saying, it's not my problem, right? <laughs> everyone's trying to blame it. And the Reserve Bank last week also said, we think the number one target in Australia should be to take unemployment down. So we should have a, a, a neutral unemployment rate of four something or maybe even three something rather than five something. And we are prepared to see house prices continue to bubble away because you can't actually lift interest rates because if you lift interest rates, you won't get unemployment down. So they basically said, you set up this false dichotomy between essentially on one hand, keeping prices high, on the other hand, trying to deal with unemployment. Now, I think that's a mistake and I think that they will probably come to regret it, but that's what everyone's saying. So no one's wanting to control house prices. So I expect house prices to go higher later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting. Um, I I do agree with you that the most of the demand so far in the market has been uh, from the owner occupiers or the first home buyers. However, there was an article last week. I think it was in uh, one of the financial uh, news yep. uh, talking about home loan commitments to investors. Yes. Jumped twelve point seven percent in February. Correct. Fastest, the fastest pace of gain since two thousand three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just bear, bear in mind that was from a really, really, really low base. So basically, probably investors are down, 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 and then it sort of moved up. It goes back to this statistical blip thing, right? Mm -hmm. If if you if you've gone down a long way, you have a small rise up, then it's a massive, you know, increase, right? So mm -hmm. let's. But yeah, there are there are some signs of some property investors beginning now to 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 come back on the scene. Um, not not universally and uh, not necessarily apartments, it's mostly houses. So again, this is this massive gap between houses and apartments. Um, mm. Also the home builder scheme, which was one of the other schemes that was, was, was put there, came to an end. And so we're seeing that new build commitments is dropping back mm -hmm. now. So that's one of the reasons why they've announced these new schemes again, trying to support. So I've, I think I've said before, the problem with all the government stimulus is it's to stimulate the construction sector and support the construction sector and it's to support the banks to stop house prices falling because we can't have house prices falling because that would then actually expose the banks to significant risks because they've got so much of their lending mm. aligned specifically to the property sector. The banks are lending hardly at all to the business sector. And in fact, business credit over the last year is down about 2.5% two, 2 or something, right? Whereas lending for housing... Uh, it is more than uh, six or seven percent for owner occupied investment though just up very slightly so you know don't don't overreact to this investment news people have been spruiking it like you wouldn't believe but yeah just get get some balance in the in the, in the perspective so i've got a question here right so if property prices were to continue the pace right mm. which means the land values will appreciate fair bit right yep. um and at the same time when you look at the likes of lumber futures where the prices went up by crazy 500%, 500% since the March crash, yeah. which means the construction cost, the construction cost 
is going to shoot up a lot. On one hand, you've got land value being appreciated. On the other hand, you've got is the construction cost, cost going up, which means uh, hypothetically, just an average house that used to cost, let's say half a million, doesn't matter where you are, uh, is now costing you straight up maybe 25% more or probably more than that, to be honest. And we all, we just discussed the um, uh, wage growth, that the wage growth probably will be a bit slower, right? Yep. So, I mean, when you combine the two together, where does that take us to, Martin? <laughs> well, we still have this fundamental problem, right? So mm-hmm. property is 40% to 50% overvalued relative to long-term income measures, or GDP measure or any other measure you can think of. So we're still backing ourselves more and more into this corner. And the question is, how much longer can this go on for? And of course, the answer is, well, you can extend the life of the loan. So expect 50-year mortgages or 100-year mortgages like in Japan. Goes back to what I said earlier on, you end up never paying it off. You just always just pay the interest, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what people are forgetting, right? Everyone's saying, well, interest rates are really low. So therefore, the cost of servicing the loan is really, really low. Mm-hmm. Never mind whether you can repay the mortgage. In fact, you know, I don't think that many people who've got mortgages today will ever pay them off. <laughs> the other thing that's going on is that people are borrowing from their parents for first-time buyers. So I published research recently on what's called the bank of mum and dad. The average loan from the parent is $90,000. This is a big number, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they're getting help from that source as well as maybe rating superannuation or um, other things too. So all of those things are in play. But we are distorting the economy more and more and more as more and more of the economy is about building, selling, and financing homes, right? It's not real, though. It's all just an artificial sort of cycle, right? It, where's the focus on innovation and new businesses and all mm. those things? Well, it's not, not there. In fact, relative to where we were a decade ago, it's completely tilted. So more and more of the financing from the banks is for the, for the construction and home mortgage part of the market. Less and less is actually creating real um, businesses. Uh, and that's my problem. So we've got this really sick economy, Frankly, if it wasn't for the 200 uh, US dollar iron ore price, our economy will be in a much worse position than it currently is. But we're very narrowly based and we're putting all our eggs, it seems to me, in the housing market. But it can't go on forever. The question is, at what point does it go pop? Well, it probably won't in the short term because everyone's wanting to keep this um, Ponzi scheme going. They're pulling more people in the bottom and people are buying and, you know, They've got this wealth effect that they're getting from the fact that prices are going up. But, you know, you're moving further and further from that sort of central neutral position. It, mm-hmm. So the elastic is getting wider, tighter and tighter and tighter. The question is, will it ping back at some point? Mm-hmm. Will that be created by an external crisis? Will it be an international political crisis? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But we are not living in the situation where our economy is well-balanced, mm-hmm. well-managed or well-focused. So basically, we are applying bandaid uh, wherever the leakage is, and the leakage leakage keeps to uh, keep increasing because the pipe is uh, yeah. full of water. And, and, and the reason for that is election cycle. We've got an election within the next year, so of course the budget, which is going to be tomorrow, will include more measures to keep the system going, and uh, you know increase the wealth effect, increase house prices, all of those things despite the fact that we haven't really dealt with the structural issues that we have in the economy. And of course, the borders are still shut. The vaccine rollout has been much slower than it should have been. All those things are are true, but they're going to focus on, see, we're 
great economic managers because house prices have gone up, more people are in the property market and everyone's got more wealth. So that's the reason. Unfortunately, we've got short-term tactical cycles, political cycles, rather than taking a more strategic view of the economy and laying the foundations for a more robust, um, innovative and creative economy, you know, and um, probably said before and probably more green based than we currently are because we're way off the pace in terms of the greening of our economy here mm-hmm. yeah the discussions at the barbecue need to change from property market to uh more innovative stuff i guess is the is the point and how do you know <laughs> housing is australia's national sport <laughs> okay so that's a good one i like it uh, i'm gonna use that uh but uh, next one um i know martin you closely um through dfa your company do a lot of mortgage stress test and the numbers yep. right so do you want to maybe give us a little bit of insight on maybe this year so far yep. what what the data is looking looking like yes absolutely so we survey households on a continuous basis and we ask them about cash flow money in money out right and unfortunately before the pandemic we had mortgage stress at about 31 32% of households were in financial cash flow issues with their mortgages now that's gone up and despite all of the oh, everything's bouncing back and it's all good we're at 41% which is mm-hmm. as high as it's been so we've got more than 1.5 million borrowers with owner occupied mortgages struggling with their mortgage repayments at the moment and that's because the mortgages are bigger mm-hmm. the work that they've got is not necessarily full time they've got many part time jobs mm-hmm. uh, all of those factors are there they've also got other financial pressures because the costs of some types of goods and services are going up health costs have gone up a lot for example um, and some others too um, mm. so cash flow for those and it's concentrated in a few areas it's concentrated in the what's called the high growth areas so those new suburbs that have been thrown together and sold off very quickly with big mortgages around the outskirts of our major towns that's the most severe mm. stressed areas we're also seeing it in some of the investor apartments as i discussed earlier because the rentals are much lower mm-hmm. and we're also seeing it amongst some property investors who've got a portfolio of properties where they're not being able to let them mm-hmm. so so the point is that whilst at the top level everything looks fine and you know the government can say well you know wealth effects happening and property prices are going up the truth is that for a considerable portion of the population they are really under financial stress mm-hmm. and the concern i have is that we're not recognizing that we've got this two speed economy we've got what i call the k shape so we've got the top end of the k where everything's fine people's wages are good they've got this wealth effect in property mm-hmm. you've got the other leg of the k though where people are really struggling they're you know will they'll keep their mortgage payments going for some months or maybe some years but they are still struggling they don't mm-hmm. have the income they need they don't have the hours they need we've still got a considerable number probably 2 million of people who are underemployed or unemployed in australia it's a big number so all of those mm-hmm. and, and so we've got this sort of really strong bifurcation that you know haves and the have nots the, the 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 more affluent and the ones who are really struggling mm-hmm. and those are not being given the airtime in my view so we've got those structural issues that nobody wants to talk about mm-hmm. fair enough um yeah this will be interesting area to watch um uh now that the is that job keeper and job seeker has it has they, it they they finished both they finished, finished right? a month so, ago yeah so it will be interesting to watch over the next few months to see yep. how this space pans out along with the property prices and all that stuff Correct. now also recently um rba in their every month 
Tuesday meeting came out and said that they uh, they don't see rates going up in the near future. So right. they're pretty defined on that part. Yep. So uh, knowing that, that the rates are going to be here, or in fact, they can probably go, I mean, it's zero. So there's no point of saying 0.1, uh, but they can be zero as well. RPA cash, what I mean. Uh, what do you see in the next couple of years? Because uh, there's, there's this property cycle. The question that I'm making is, there's this property cycle going on. And then there's this mortgage stress numbers that will pan out over the year as mm-hmm. the prices go up and now the seeker and the keeper packages have uh, disappeared completely. We on this podcast have few people come, uh, come up and talk about property and it's looking very bullish, right? Mm. Uh, so how do you see this space panning out and what, what are the challenges you're seeing basically? Yeah, well, I've, I've, you know, my central case, and I do different scenarios, my central case is property prices will continue to rise over the next couple of years, because rates will stay low, all of the government stimulus, the Ponzi scheme will continue, right? It's not good for the economy, but that's likely to be where we are, unless we get that external crunch. So it could be a political crunch or an international economic crunch, right? Now, Mm -hmm. that's my sort of base case. But then I say, there's also a negative case that transpires from two areas one is if we get a really significant momentum again in the virus so we've got the virus pretty much under control locally but Mm. we haven't got the vaccine rolled out and and so we're quite exposed international borders will be shut for months and months and months from Mm -hmm. now on so so there is a downside risk from 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 the virus potentially if if the virus came back really strongly it could actually then have an impact negatively on the property market, right? But mm-hmm. that's not my central case. Um, the other side of it is if we actually find that the central bank's stimulus measures around the world aren't actually successful in turning the economy around and we still see you know, another one or two or three years, more debt being created, the debt bomb is getting bigger and bigger. We've got three debt bombs in Australia. We've got the private sector debt bomb, most mm-hmm. of mortgages. We've got corporates who are highly leveraged and we've now got the government and the government here, if you take fed and state together have put in more than $1 trillion in the last year, pretty mm-hmm. much to try and support the economy. That's a big number. That's a really big number. Right. Mm-hmm. So how much longer than go on doing that for? And the question is, well, they, they, they can go on doing it, but if rates were to start to rise, that would put significant pressure on the budget. If in fact the economy is still floundering in a year 18 months time can they go on just creating more and more money out of thin air and then putting out into the economy you know is are there limits and bounds i don't know the answer to that question but it seems to me that if we turn to the point where that bound those bounds are reached that's another reason for a downside scenario too so that's again not my central scenario my central scenario is prices will be a lot stronger i expect investors to continue to come back i expect the apartments market to stay weak for all the reasons and just to give you a very quick story, Mascot Tower, which is one of the ones in Sydney that's had structural defects, it's about 10 years old, or give or take a bit. Um, they've just announced they're going to demolish it. So people have lost 80% of the value of those properties because they were poorly built, had lots of structural cracks, can't be fixed. And we know from our work that there are a lot of other properties across the Australia that have really not been built very well in the last decade or so. So mm-hmm. I would expect to see more defects and more problems, particularly with high rise, particularly with those built in the last decade or so. So I don't think Mascot Tower will be the last demolished 
monument of the stupidity that we've had over the last decade. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Actually, yeah, um, the quality because the construction cost obviously is going up, especially now. Uh, mm. We just mentioned before lumber futures, uh, and as the cost goes up, there will be cost cutting to sell the apartments or houses. Uh, Correct. Quicker. So, so the co- cost cutting is already happening. So we're already seeing that. So the quality of construction is already going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, the only other thing I had in um, uh, mind was because uh, we were talking about inflation, uh, mm. Martin, and I was keen to see what your thoughts are. If you would take um, inflation based on the M2 money supply, and just yep. in the last two years, the inflation if you were to take into account the M2 money supply, the, in the last two years, the inflation real number uh, in US would have been somewhere around 37%, mm. right? So yep. even if you were in a property market or stock market, um, if you haven't made more than 37%, you've still lost money, right? So as I said earlier on, if you look at the long-term trend of um, you know, real inflation, and the money supply, there's no correlation. It goes up, down, up, down, up, down, all over the place. I don't think money supply is a good indicator of inflation at all. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and I've continued to hold the view that m- the money supply furphy, because everyone's saying, oh, huge amounts of money. Right? Well, it rather depends on where the money is, what's going to be done with it, rather than just the, the, the number itself. My own view is money supply is not a good proxy for inflation. Fair enough. Uh, that's, that's I think, a great way to end. Um, anything else, Martin, that you would like to talk about uh, from an investor's perspective before we start wrapping this up? That's pretty much all I had in mind. Well, I think just make one point. I think we're at a very interesting inflection point where the markets are overvalued. You know, mm-hmm. the markets are silly, silly overvalued. Most people are momentum trading, right? If you look at long-term fundamentals, of most of the stocks, they're way overvalued, right? Even And if interest rates were to start to rise, then the valuations would be even more stretched. So we've got to the point, I think, where you've got to ask a serious question as to whether those markets have really more legs to go higher or whether, in fact, despite all the stimulus, despite all the, um, you know, the fiscal as well, um, there is still upside momentum. In the short term, there's a bit, but I wonder whether at some point we're going to hit the tipping point. And if we do hit the tipping point, maybe September is an interesting time to watch because often if you look at when things go wrong, it's in September, October time. I question about September, October this year will be worth watching very closely in that time frame, whether the financial markets begin to tip the other way. If they do, then all bets are off as to precisely where we go from here. At least uh, companies are backed by some product. There's productivity. We have got Dogecoin over here that's going up. <laughs> what crazy person yeah exactly <laughs> so, person. i don't know man <laughs> well you know it's mickey mouse numbers right and that's the point really so, at some point maybe we'll get back to a more fundamental value but not in the short term maybe maybe we should start ignoring the fundamentals because if we keep looking at the because if the economist and the smart people keep looking at the fundamentals the people who will be making money is the, the ones who are idiots well they're speculating the right so, and, 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 like and there's a difference between investing and speculating right? without <laughs> getting too philosophical about it right because basically there are lots of people making money on speculation and thinking they're really clever and they'll be clever until it goes wrong right mm-hmm. um the question is speculation investing isn't the same thing i i tend to want to have a strategic view and a long-term view rather than a speculative view, but that's just my nature. So. Yeah. Look, Martin, great chat. 
always fun to have you on the show. Your knowledge is awesome. Uh, it's just great talking to you about different things. Uh, doesn't matter what topic we pick, you you know your stuff. So appreciate your time. Uh, we'll probably hook up some time uh, later in the year and go through some of the mortgage numbers and property numbers uh, and whatever else is happening in the market. And to the listeners, uh, hope you guys enjoyed Martin's chat and uh, play safe, stay safe. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Martin. Cheers.